Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Treasuries, the story of the last couple of months is just yields bleeding lower. This morning, yields unchanged. 10-year yields, 283 on a US two-year note. We're unchanged at 250. So the story, sentiment just whipsawing. First by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who for some set the stage for a softer approach towards China. And then by economic advisor Larry Kudlow, who suggested the US wasn't backing down. Joining me here in New York is Kate Moore, BlackRock Chief Equity Strategist. Good morning to you, Kate. Good morning. So what do you say to clients? What on earth is going on? Well, look, I think it's very difficult for any of us to predict what's going on in the White House. The White House has difficult predicting what's going on in the White House. So uh, outside people can't really forecast exactly uh, how trade will evolve. Here's what we do know is that this back and forth and this uncertainty is starting to have an impact on how companies are talking about taking risk. And that's something we're really focused on, especially because the expectations for spending and investing uh, were very strong going into the beginning of this year and then got supercharged after the tax cuts. So any kind of change in tone we get from companies as they're reporting second quarter earnings, particularly around guiding for investment, and if they're citing trade issues, which we've heard a couple very uh, high profile CEOs do over recent days, um, I would hope that it would have an influence on the way that the, the trade discussions evolve. So tell me how you see the balance of risks around CapEx improving. Is the balance of risk now tilted to the downside or to the upside? Look, I was always in the camp that CapEx was going to be a little bit more conservative than yeah. some of the initial surveys suggested. You know, you had a lot of companies, either because they, they felt explicit political pressure or implicit or because things were finally feeling a little bit better on the regulatory environment. They felt like they had to say they were going to spend more money. That's, good. That's not a bad thing. But, you know, the follow through uh, has been, you know, um, you know, not necessarily as strong as some of these surveys would suggest. And in fact, looking back at the historic data, it, it almost never is. There's not a great relationship there. But very importantly, the companies that are spending today are those that already have had a lot of free cash. Yes, sir. Some of them are benefiting from the tax cuts and repatriating money um, back to the U.S. But we're not getting a lot of the riskier companies all of a sudden changing their investment plans. And I certainly you know, see the policy environment and the trade environment uh, making that a, a difficult switch right now. It's funny. It's hard to reconcile where sentiment is at the moment on Wall Street with the numbers that we're expected to get from the second quarter in the U.S. economy. We're expecting a big second quarter GDP figure. Yeah. Um, Kate, how do you reconcile those two things, sentiment and the fundamentals on the ground in the United States at the moment? I know it's a little bit difficult on radio, John, but for the, <laughs> I was just nodding my head as you were speaking. It's not just the GDP figures for the second quarter, but it's also second quarter earnings. Yeah. I think we're going to have a big bucket of strong data in the U.S. Uh, over the next couple weeks that we're going to have not only strong consumption and strong uh, overall economic growth, but actually quite strong earnings across a huge variety of sectors. And, you know, that doesn't seem to be playing itself out in, in, in prices across risk assets at this moment. Within all this is new cash. Cash has a yield now. Is cash a new asset class for Kate Moore? Cash is definitely an asset class that it hasn't been for a very long time. 
I don't see it as a great substitute for overall equity risk, but it certainly mm-hmm. does change the calculation on the fixed income side. And across a lot of the fixed income portfolios within BlackRock, we've seen a rotation uh, towards holding uh, shorter uh, duration instruments right. and more cash. You know, it, it's a prudent thing to do, even for uh, you know a multi-asset investor who's thinking about uh, waiting for even a further pullback or looking for opportunities well, and, and, and with a slightly higher risk premium. Here's a headline out, just perfectly timed for uh, Ms. Moore. Walgreens, Dow Component, third quarter beats estimates, make America great again, and they announce a $10 billion share buyback. They've yeah. got 345,000 employees. They got free cash flow they're generating per year of $6 billion. So they're going to buy back, uh, off the top of my head, 20 months yeah. of free cash flow. Look, I would be very surprised if we didn't see a whole swath of new buyback announcements coming after earnings. It makes sense for companies if they don't have perfect visibility into future demand. I mean, this is one of the other things with challenging as we talk well, about the CapEx story as well. You need to, if you're going to engage in a multi-year investment plan, feel like okay. you can predict the cycle. But this is critical, and this goes, frankly, back to Mario Draghi and Chairman Paul and the rest. Companies that you look at every day are managing for a low nominal GDP, low revenue growth environment. That's they're they're going out there buying revenue growth. Good morning, everyone with Pinnacle. Uh, they're going out there buying revenue growth and they're buying back stock because they don't know what to do with the money. I don't even think it's just they don't know what to do with the money. I I would just suggest that you know companies are at especially U.S. companies record level of profits. They've had this boost from the tax cuts, and what they're doing today is saying I will make some investments for the future, but realistically, this is a very long cycle. And they are the same people who are kind of cautious about uh, whether or not the bull market can continue, who are also managing these companies uh, and saying, I don't want to spend too far or too much too far into the cycle. I want to have some dry powder and buying back shares also provides them with with a little support and dry powder as well. Okay, speaking of a sector that's buying back shares, um, the banks. Yeah. Now, I don't want to let you go without talking about the financials in the United States. We're on a 13 day losing streak on S&P financials. We we just did that. I'm glad you're doing it again. It's worth doing. It's a record losing streak on a daily basis. What do you basis. mean record? Like back forever? It is a record daily losing streak on S&P 500 financials. It doesn't wow. amount to a big, big slide, but it's a record daily losing streak. Right. Um, Kate, what do you think of that? What's behind it going into stress test results that should reveal the banks have got the green light to go ahead with buying back a lot of stock? I find it a little bit puzzling. I can come up with a, a bunch of micro explanations for why the banks have underperformed. Yeah. But, you know, in this environment <clears throat> where we're expecting more cash return, yeah. and we're expecting very good results today, uh, where the regulatory environment is easing, where rates are going up with the macro backdrop strong. And, uh, you know, I think some of these micro explanations shouldn't hold right. a lot of water after today. Why did Denmark beat the Republic of Ireland five to one? last fall um, what happened that tom I, you know we'll have to take that offline because i'm afraid the viewers are not ready for my explanation they're listeners yeah. on radio as well listeners john again i'm, I'm I, surprised I, it only took you eight minutes to bring up the world cup well I, we're going to get to it in a minute here you know with those england belgium oh, today is like a big deal don't. is <laughs> ireland a soccer force john they could add a decent team they just didn't make it they, they I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a force but it's a decent team they beat wales one nothing back yeah. in October. You're fascinated by this. I you? am. I'm. I, I watched the highlights last night. I was almost interested in Germany 
losing. I mean, it was like really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I was I was doing my radio show in London. It started at midday um, Eastern time, yeah. and the game was literally bumping right up against um, the start of the radio show. So I watched the game at my desk, then sprinted um, to the radio show for London. Yeah, and just made the start of the program. I think for, I, for the, London the last time I sprinted, Nixon was president. For, for our <laughs> London listeners, they take some satisfaction from Germany's exit from the World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Kate, Kate Moore, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Kate. For, thank for you for tolerating us. I no, feel like, Tom, at the moment, but, I'm thanking all our guests and saying thank you for tolerating she, well, us. Well, that's true. But she's Can got an optimistic view of the market. I have an optimistic view, but I think a, a fairly balanced view in terms of corporate activity. And actually, that's why I'm more optimistic. Look, I'm just one last point on Please. this. When you look at the performance of companies. Oh, I thought you were going to talk World Cup. Okay, okay. go ahead. When you look okay. at the performance of companies that have done um, you know, the highest levels of CapEx, not just since the, the financial crisis, but over kind of a 30-year period, they've underperformed those companies that have been more conservative right. and have returned cash to shareholders. So, you know, this yeah. this big hope that we were going to get a spending wave that's going right. to lead to our performance of all these companies, I think is overdone. Yeah, you, you, we don't have the same veterinarian, but I take vet bill to the vet. And I write, when I write a check out to the veterinarian, I just write it out to a prep school. Yeah. I don't even write it out to the damn vet. I write it out. This is here. Just make it out to this prep school. I just write it directly. It's amazing. I what could fund cost. a small country with my vet bills. You could. You, you yeah. know, we could fund an island nation. You know, Tom, we're still on live radio. You know, when, when you can do this in a commercial break. Oh, no, this is people care about vet bills. They, they care about the vet bill? <laughs> no, vet bill's the name of the dog. Yeah, I like your family. Foreign exchange has been a tough place to live over the last couple of years. 2017, people called for a stronger dollar. We got a weaker one. 2018, people called for a weaker dollar. We got a stronger one. And I still haven't heard the dollar bears capitulate. Well, I can tell you, we've got a bit of a dollar bull here. David Wu joins us now of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, head of Global Rates, FX and EM, fixed income strategy and economics research. David, when did your title get so long? I know it's crazy, absolutely crazy. What can I do about it? Well, welcome <laughs> to the program. Help me out with the U.S. dollar call because I keep talking to dollar bear after dollar bear that refuses to capitulate and believe in what we're seeing on the screen so far this year. You know, it's amazing. You know, I've been traveling on the West Coast in the last two or three days. L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, Sacramento. I'm telling you, I could not find a single client that was long the dollar. And it's amazing because this probably must be a, a record of some sort because we just had a 7% dollar rally. And it's amazing. I cannot find a single person who either professes to be long the dollar or for that matter be bullish for the dollar. It is pretty amazing. This also leads me to think that, you know, there's no question that this dollar rally is probably going to keep going. So, David, that's what I've been looking at this morning as well. And I fold EM into this too. You know, despite the price action, I really haven't heard that much capitulation from EM bulls or dollar bears. And it leads me just concluding that I just don't have any conviction that this trade is totally exhausted. And is that pretty much where you are as well, David? And just folding the forces that are really going to drive this dollar through the back end of the year. I think so, because, you know, especially when it comes to EM, because the big difference between this EM sell-off, first of all, we saw, let's say, in 2013. So 2013, you saw a big correction in prices, but we also saw a very significant position adjustment. This time, we've seen a big correction in prices, we haven't seen anything like what we saw in terms of position adjustment. It tells me there's no liquidity, for one thing. 
I mean, certainly the average age of market makers in EM on Wall Street right now is probably 10 years younger than they were five, six years ago. There is absolutely no door to even get out. Yeah. So from that point of view, this is a very, very worrying thing to me. David, this is right where I wanted to go. I'm glad you brought this up in that I would suggest into this cycle, whatever happens, we're dealing with a wildly ahistorical street and that they really don't know the history. How close are we to the correlations and the behavior, the emotions that you get with strong dollar, weaker EM? I mean, Tommy, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is why, in many ways, I mean, this 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 is why EM gets very dangerous when crossover investors start to basically give up. I'll give you an example. Incredibly, right now, not that incredible. Do you know, right now, you can buy a one-year J.P. Morgan paper or Bank of America paper that pays you 3% and more. In other words, it's the first time in at least 10 years you can earn 3% without taking duration risk, without taking any credit risk, just being loaned the U.S. dollar. Why, if you can earn 3% by J.P. Morgan paper, why the hell would you want to buy Brazil at 6%? This is what I think a lot of crossover investors started to ask themselves. And this is the reason why I think if we just get 10, 20% of crossover investors, meaning investors were not benchmarked to EM, start to basically pull out, I think you're going to see a shockwave through EM that we haven't even begun to see yet. So, David, in the limited time that we have with you, I've really got to get your thoughts on, on China as well. If we're going to see a shock in EM, what are we about to see in China? And just what is going on with the Chinese currency? Unpack what is driving this currency lower, weaker. I think it's very simple. You know what? Last year, my worst call was that I thought Chinese economy was going to slow because of the deleveraging. But guess what? Last year, global growth was so strong. You know, Chinese export growth was so strong. It more than offset the deleveraging. This time around, it's a totally different story. They're continuing to leverage. Global growth was definitely not as quite as strong. So basically, there's no question Chinese growth is slowing, which means that they need easier credit conditions and monetary right. conditions, which until now they have been will- unwilling to give because they were t- under pressure to prop up the RMB. Now, I think it's very clear. They have now a gun pointing at their head, and they have no choice. They're now starting to let the RMB go, notwithstanding the fact that they're under pressure from the U.S. to basically reach an agreement on trade. So I think, you know, in some sense, the RMB weakness is actually very concerning. David, well, what is your call on yen? I just want to frame how big a move you see. What's your 12 months out call on dollar yen? On dollar yen? Yeah. You mean dollar, dollar yen? I think, listen, dollar yen, I think we're going to 115, 117, just because I'm so incredibly bullish about the U.S. Isn't that a Tom, huge move? Isn't that like a disruptive move to see seven big figures? You know what, Tom, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and you know me, I've been a doom and gloom guy for the most <laughs> part, but I've never been this bullish to the U.S. economy in 20 years I've been doing this. Wow. I am absolutely, it's a liberating, basically, feeling every morning I wake up. Right. You know what, it's just, and that's, that's the fundamental story here, which is that this economy is growing gangbuster, and for all the good reason, and the market remains in denial, that because this tax reform, it is absolutely changing the way people think about yeah. this economy, in my view, especially in corporate America. David, really emphatic, and we have a real limited time left, so just one quick final question. I just wonder whether dollar-yen is the cleaner rates play in G10 at the moment. And the reason I ask this is, what is the global dividend of a really strong U.S. economy? And if we get the dollar that really starts to rip in the way you think it will, aren't we going to need to buy a little bit of Japanese yen? Aren't we going to see a bit of risk aversion internationally? No, that's why I still like selling euro dollar as my favorite base B dollar. Interesting. Because 
I'm telling you, whether there's if there's no trade war, this economy is going to go crazy. And I'm telling you, the dollar is going to surge because we're going to see a massive repricing okay. of the terminal five months rate. If there's a trade war, the E is going to go down the toilet and Europe is much more dependent on EM than is the U.S. So it's very simple. David, we're going to have to leave it there. David, we thank you so much on the West Coast. Greatly appreciate What a trooper to get up this early. This is without question our interview of the day. Travis Langner is in Chicago. He is out of the academic combine of Kansas, but he is a, a person of immense uniqueness. He has clerked both for Justice Kennedy and also for Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who is on the short, short list to replace uh, Mr. Kennedy. We are joined now uh, by Mr. Langner in uh, Washington. Travis, wonderful to have you with us. Noah Feldman was with us yesterday from Harvard Law and spoke of the moment of Justice Kennedy. Help our audience with how Justice Kennedy practiced Supreme Court law. What was he like in the chambers? Well, in chambers and with his colleagues, uh, he was, just incredibly collegial. You know, the, the court presents uh, in its written work as sometimes fairly uh, a combative place among the justices. In fact, uh, many of them have very close relationships. And Justice Kennedy really was a part of that fabric, friends on both sides of the aisle, as, as we would, would think of it from outside the court. And I think you saw that in the statements from his colleagues yesterday, who really will miss his personal presence uh, on the court and in chambers, uh, as well as his legal mind and his work. Critically, as we move to Brett Kavanaugh and the other candidates, to me it seems like a generational shift. Noah and others, Cass Sunstein and others speak of Justice Kennedy's interpretation of dignity is his broader view of making law. Is that a generational shift of the past? And what will the new law be, whether it's Justice Kavanaugh or someone else? Well, I think, I'm not sure if it's a generational shift in legal thinking. It's certainly anytime there's an opportunity for a president to make an appointment, a nomination to the Supreme Court, it's usually a generational shift just in the sense that Justice Kennedy will be 82 this summer and all of the folks who are mentioned as possible replacements are in their, uh, their early 50s or maybe their late 40s. In terms of his jurisprudence and, and what the future of the court looks like, Justice Kennedy really is at heart a conservative, but someone... Uh, you know, if you trace his roots to California and maybe think of a of a Western, uh, a U.S. Western uh, right. libertarianism, and, and that's really a streak that runs through all of his opinions. And there is a there is probably a, a new type of conservatism, uh, whoever is nominated to to replace him. From where you sit, what is the distinction between the present Justice Gorsuch? in a candidate such as Kavanaugh, or is it almost a cookie-cutter modern conservatism? Well, I think uh, to contrast Justice Gorsuch and, and, Ju and Judge Kavanaugh, uh, there are probably some differences on the margins in the way they would approach certain issues, and certainly in the types of experience that they've had. Uh, Judge Gorsuch, now Justice Gorsuch, sat on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver, which <coughs> is uh, a circuit that is a little different from right. Judge Kavanaugh's court here in D.C. for the types of issues where they have expertise. But in terms of their legal thinking, uh, their, their right. work as a mainstream conservative in the law today, 
today, those are two very similar names. Your voice and heritage, and Professor Feldman at Harvard captured this in Scorpions beautifully, your voice and heritage out of Kansas and Chicago is critical, and that it's a Midwest voice, and whether it's Wizard White from the past and the rest of them, there is an American view that the Supreme Court is controlled by the elites of the East and a few selected liberals that got lost on the West Coast. How <laughs> mid-continent will this Supreme Court become? How Kansas-like will this Supreme Court be? Uh, I'm not sure it will be terribly Kansas-like, but I would say that of, of the, the potential nominees that are listed now, uh, all of them, regardless of their current geography, share an academic background and a background in the law that looks very similar and is fairly elite. And uh, Professor Feldman and others have, have rightly pointed out that this is not a, a court made up of, of Byron Whites and Tony Kennedys and uh, folks from Minnesota, California, all, all across the, the country. Uh, this is an East Coast court, yeah. regardless of who is nominated, and even if that person happens to sit now in the Midwest. Um, Travis, we often talk about uh, politicians getting into power and changing a little bit in how they view things, in trying to find either more consensus or being more belligerent. Is it the same for justices? Do people change when they get appointed to the Supreme Court in their beliefs? I don't know if they change immediately upon appointment to the Supreme Court, but we've seen historically changes uh, while justices serve on the court. And of course, the court is a legal institution, but, but also in many ways a political institution. Justices read the newspaper, uh, they know the issues of our time, and as the balance of courts shifts and as members come and go, you do see changes uh, among the remaining members. That certainly happened with Justice O'Connor, uh, particularly when Justice Scalia joined the court. Some would say uh, that it happened a bit with Justice Kennedy after Justice O'Connor departed the court in 2006. And it could be something uh, that happens that we see potentially with Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who many are saying now becomes the center of the court, uh, regardless of who is confirmed. But you know that center will have moved slightly to the right if it is the Chief Justice now who occupies that middle position. What exact effect will this have on social issues facing the court? Is there one social issue that, that will um, you know, really be in the limelight? Well, you know, there's discussion about several social issues, abortion probably being uh, the leading one, but it, it's not clear what exact effect uh, a, a new justice will have. You know, many of the justices, uh, or all of them really on the short list, of course, come from uh, the more conservative school of legal thought. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, all abortion decisions are potentially overturned or, or reversed. Uh, there could be some narrowing, but frankly, we've seen that over the last uh, 10 or 20 years. Uh, narrowing right. of uh, the abortion opinions, even with Justice Kennedy, frankly, at the center of the court. Mr. Leonard, what is the difference between a 5-4 and a 6-3 court? If we get to a 6-3, I mean, I can't even fathom getting to 7-2, but what's the difference between 5-4 and 6-3? Well, I think in, internally at the court, as well as externally, just from a a public awareness and, and uh, trust in the court as an institution standpoint, mm -hmm. there's certainly, uh, you know, for all of us externally watching the court, when you see a 6-3 or 7-2 and you see broad consensus around an opinion uh, on a controversial issue, that probably means it's a more narrow opinion. Right. Uh, and for many people, that's a comforting yeah. sign that the court is being more incrementalist uh, as opposed to taking some broader steps. I don't know that a replacement for Justice Kennedy changes the number of 
of five to four decisions on this court. And it's interesting, actually, in the term just concluded, Justice Kennedy uh, never joined the four more liberal justices to create that classic five to four that we've seen in previous terms. Mm. So it could be that next term with a replacement for Justice Kennedy looks a lot like this term in terms of uh, how the votes stack up, stack up excuse me, among the nine of them. Uh, Mr. Langner, thank you so much for joining us today with Keller Langner uh, in Washington, Travis Langner. This is beyond well-timed with Barings, uh, yes, of, of olden time and Barings Asset Management. Joining us now is Christopher Smart, and that is a name some of you in international relations will do. Oh, there's literally no one in international relations who is linked to finance, as Christopher Smart has his work uh, at the Kennedy School, among other places, as public service to the nation, but also uh, as a CFA and working within finance, including with Pioneer Investments of Boston uh, years ago. Christopher Smart, it is an opportune time to rip up the script and speak to you of the Helsinkis of the past and the idea that Mr. Putin will meet with Mr. Trump in a new Helsinki. Our Eli Lake this morning is scathing about the idea of an uncontrolled Mr. Trump meeting with Mr. Putin. What should the administration fear with a president one-on-one with Mr. Putin? Well, I think these things, as you say, are normally very well scripted, very well prepared, and the meeting outcomes are usually well determined and planned in advance. Uh, having two leaders go into a room together is something through history I think we have seen uh, as not a formula for success, partly because when they come out of the room, it's never clear what has happened. Um, we had a similar uh, uh, example, I think, when President Kennedy met uh, Chairman Khrushchev, and uh, they both came out with very different reports of that meeting. So right. that's at least one thing to fear. The second thing is that it's very hard to know what the next step is in the U.S.-Russia relationship. As important as it is, we are at a point where we just don't like talking to each other about anything. And for a lot of the reasons that I think on our side are very well-founded, uh, but the Russians reject uh, the facts. The old Daniel Patrick Moynihan line about you have the right to your own opinion but not your own facts the Russians are working from a different set of facts, even though they're wrong. Within this is this template of international investment. John Farrow and I have spent days and weeks with a new international politics. How does that fold into international investment? Well, I think for an investor, uh, as much time as we spend looking at the politics and as important as those things are, when at the end of the day you're buying a stock or you're buying a bond, you're looking to discount the cash flows you're going to get back. And while you wonder and wring your hands over the future of the Korean Peninsula, it's very hard to price that back into an investment. So I think investors up until now and for the last several years and for years to come will focus on the economic data more than anything else. Um, but I think they have to start pricing in things like trade wars where the flow of mm -hmm. goods and services across borders will become more expensive, and that will have an impact right. on markets. Does that diminish global nominal GDP, diminish and dampen the animal spirit, and does that lead to the mergers like we saw yesterday with Pinnacle and ConAgra, where basically the only way you can grow is to grow out and acquire revenue? 
I mean, we end up with a new M&A. Well, I think that will drive the economics and the technology, I think, are driving you towards globalization, larger firms, more cross-border scale. At the same time, as you see, the politics are working in the other direction, uh, where where populist uh, elected officials around the world are trying to take more control of their borders and... Um, make you know, uh, throw up walls that weren't there before. But Christopher, is this going to force the mainstream to to wake up to what the electorate ultimately would like to see? Um, because what I see from many guests that come on this program on trade is a very sort of China apologist stance from a lot of people on the trade issue. On immigration, they're like several years behind what the electorate has been calling for. Um, so the the rise of populism is only going to get a whole lot so worse. Um, so long as the mainstream political parties don't wake up to what is actually happening. Well, I think it depends on which mainstream parties you're talking about, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, there is change afoot, and we have seen that in elections that have shocked um, the establishments in the United States and Europe and elsewhere. And I think there is an important um, set of lessons that new politicians and new political leaders need to draw. On China, I think, you know, what is um, absolutely right is that China has been a very difficult and um, bad actor in many ways in the global trade system. I think the question is, how do you best deal with China um, because it is going to continue to grow and become bigger and more influential in not just the trading system, but the global financial system. Uh, And that takes much more than slapping tariffs on one side or the other. So what is the best approach? I mean, we continually have this conversation on Bloomberg Radio, and I don't necessarily subscribe to one approach. My question continually, though, is the approach of the last 10 years hasn't worked. So why should we carry on doing the same thing? Well, I think you just have to keep at it, is is my short and not very uh, dramatic answer. But I think it's one of those things where these are not transactions, these are not one-offs or deals that we need to be focusing on. We need to be focusing on building a relationship because China will be right. here for a long time. We just talked to David Wu of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and he's on the sell side and he's out pushing a research agenda, which is a wonderful thing. You're on the buy side. Does the buy side have a dollar call? I mean, do you guys sit around the shop trying to bet the dollar? No, I think we look at the dollar as a very important determinant of value in markets around the world. And so we are always thinking are about Are you framing for a strong dollar now? I think if you look at the way things have been headed and the, the, the you know, we are raising rates here, the rest of the world seems to be uh, moving in a different direction that has, you know, has been moving the dollar yeah. lately. And that seems like a, a continued uh, direction. But I think um, uh, it's a very confusing time in many ways because we don't right. have the synchronized growth that we've had anymore. Just because of the time that we've got left with you and the news flow and with your unique focus on – when did you first go to Moscow? Uh, well, 19- Brezhnev, Peter the Great, who was it? Uh, it was Brezhnev. Brezhnev? Yeah. I mean, w- w- within that is this – the myth and the mystery. John, you may be better at this than me. Of what is our, what do we get wrong about Russian capitalism right now? When you talk to people in the West about Russia, what do we get wrong when we try to interpret it? Well, I think uh, Russia is a very big and very complicated country that often we get wrong because we ascribe everything to Putin. Yeah. And to a single leader and to uh, a single it's agenda. It's more complex than that. It is far more complex than that. It is a group, It is a country of 150 million people. It's not just oil. It's not just commodities, even though they dominate the economy. Right. Uh, it is also a new generation that has come of age long since the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, and I think we do ourselves a disservice to think of it yeah. in, in uh, monolithic terms. Dr. Smart, do we uh, overemphasize oligarchs? 
I mean, John looks at them all because they end up buying all the English soccer teams. But that's true. But, but, <laughs> but do we overlook the oligarchs? Well, I think they're they're an important part of the picture as well, but they're also yeah. not the only part of the picture. Um, uh, but that's uh, something right. that we can, you know, uh, <clears throat> I think. Uh, just to get the yeah. World Cup in here for a second. You know, oh, wow. Please. Russia. Wow. Oh, I just wanted to put in a plug for Team, for team Chris, Russia. Christopher Smart. For Team Russia. Yeah. Who, they've moved on and they look I think good. I think we're going to have them in the finals. And then there'll be a huge investigation over whether or not they were... Um... Bribing referees. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that... You know okay. something's going to happen. Just, I, I, Christopher Smart, I'm so glad you're here because we're going to pick on Farrell right now. Anthony from Sparta emails in. And says, and they say American sports are hard to follow. John, he insists that you recap why England and Belgium want to lose today. Okay, because uh, but they don't some necessarily of our American want audience. to lose because they want to avoid the better team in the next round. France? Uh, no, Colombia is who they're going to play. Why is Colombia one of the better teams? Well, Colombia are one of the better teams. Oh, okay, compared to say Senegal or Japan, who would you rather play? Okay. You'd rather play. Keep insulting Senegal our international Japan. audience. It's no, I good. imagine you'd rather play Senegal or, okay. or Japan than Colombia. I would have thought. So when we get a barn burner zero zero tie in the 89th minute, and they add on all those dumb and they extra work out that they might they have do, to play Colombia. What do they do? They all go. They all go to the. I they don't. All, they all go to the. Um, I just don't think the middle of the field, Ken, and they go halfback no, center. No, center, no, we're not halfback, doing this. No, center, no, halfback. No, stop trying to do, get Ken? him to play it. Stop trying to get him to play it. I don't want him to play it. I don't want him to play it. <laughs> what are you controlling the control I'm, room? I'm fighting you, and I really don't want Ken to play it. And oh, he's gone with you. <laughs> it's great to know where I stand on Back this program center. and the hierarchy of things, center isn't it? Dr. Smart doesn't have fun. We're playing The Simpsons here. Once again, I've got to thank the guests for tolerating us. Christopher Smart, thank you so much for the wisdom on Russian World Cup. My pleasure. That's the first force with bearings, we should say, and on international investment, of course, on a stronger dollar as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.